welcome everyone to our latest episode of Two Lips, One Mic. I'm Anna. And I'm Cushy. Um, apologies for it being so long in between intervals. I mean, you were in hospital last week. That's true. When we were going to record. I feel like that's a valid excuse. <laughs> I think it is a valid excuse. Um, so this week's format's going to be a teeny tiny bit different. And initially what we were planning on doing was actually having a bit of a, um, a book club chat about this amazing book that... We've both been devouring um, Eggshell Skull by Brie Lee. Um, an excellent book. But um, given the tragic events that have happened earlier this week with the um, alleged rape and murder of Eurydice Dixon, we thought it would be remiss not to um, have a bit of a conversation about the wider con- themes that are being explored by the community. And I think it's important when we have these discussions to not detract from to not get too carried away with the fact that something horrible happened and the community will still need to be in mourning. And I think Mm. um, Eurydice's family and friends have actually um, warned against politicising the tragic death. Mm -hmm. So I think we should bear in mind of that in having these conversations. But it happens again and again. I mean, we've had a few very high-profile murders of women, so Marcel Bukatik and... um, you can forget Jilma. Jilma. Mm-hmm. And um, they're always the boogeyman murders that mm. generate the biggest um, media interest. Mm. But they also generate some very interesting discussions about the concept of victim blaming mm-hmm. and self-responsibility. Mm-hmm. So um, if we just go through the comments made in the immediate aftermath of Eurydice Dixon's um, death... Um, A superintendent there made the comment that, and I'm quoting here directly, my message is that people need to be more aware of their own personal security and just be mindful of their surroundings. And then another police officer said, this is an area of high community activity, so just make sure you have situational awareness, that you're aware of your surroundings. If you've got a mobile phone, carry it, and if you've got any concerns, call police. So obviously this generated a lot of Twitter debate Mm. and I think a lot of the people I follow are, you know, typically left-wing feminists. So it was predictable what their response was going to be with this. And Mm. we've we've had conflicts about this in the past. Um, I remember when it was Marcel Bukatik and um, the crime squad inspector at the time, he came out and said comments that were much more pointed about women being careful about walking around in parks later. Walking around in parks. Yeah. I can't remember the words verbatim, so don't quote me on it, but I know... Um, there was were... reference to the fact that she was wearing headphones as well while she was walking in the park. I do remember that. And it was horrific because in that horrible case, she was a 17-year-old blowing off some steam after studying for VCE. Um, she was going on a walk at around 3.30 in the afternoon and it was such a random attack Mm. and it was just by mere coincidence that she happened to be in the same place as Sean Price at that time for that to have occurred and there was literally nothing she could do to prevent that. Mm. Um, I think the reason why we have conflict about this is because I'm very, you know, um, careful about the concept of self-responsibility when I think about safety as well. And so when when these comments were made, I kind of eye-rolled them but I wasn't offended in any sense of the word I just so why did you eye roll at them I eye rolled because it sounds 
one, like the shit that people say anytime these types of murders happen. Mm-hmm. Um, two, it sounds very much like my dad speaking um, in the sense that it's paternalistic and it's well-intentioned maybe, um, but it's nothing new. Yeah. And I think that's where, like, we there is a meaning of the minds now to use because mm. this is nothing new. To say to people that you need to have situational awareness um, and to have your mobile phone on you is stating the fucking obvious. Yeah, especially as a woman. Um, I think I came at it from a different angle initially. Mm. I was very much filled with a lot of rage reading and listening to these comments. Um Partially for the same reasons you were, uh, I was like, this has all been said and done before. This happened when Jill Ma was killed. This happened when Massa Vakotic was killed. And I'm just sick and tired of it. To think that we don't already as women have situational awareness is really oh. undermining our intelligence as women in the world we're in. I completely understand that. I think, um, I guess when I was reading the comments I was coming at it from a super individualistic perspective so Mm -hmm. it made it actually prompted me to reassess my risk assessments and how I conduct myself in the day-to-day so I I guess I wasn't thinking about the broader scale thoughts about it you know about it victim blame or anything like that I was just like thinking okay so what steps can I take to prevent any harm happening to me and you know a, a lot of that um, is from my time working with police, but also from being a lawyer doing a lot of duty of care issues, which is what reasonable steps can I take to prevent this foreseeable harm? And it's a very pragmatic stance mm-hmm. rather than um, like a political stance because I absolutely think it's shit and it's not fair that I have to take 50,000 more steps than my brother to walk home at night. Mm-hmm. It's it's absolutely not fair at all, but I... Even coming at it from that individualistic point of view, though, mm. are there any additional steps you would take in response right to now? this? Yeah. I'm actually seriously considering doing self-defence classes. Okay. Because I thought, you know what, I already do so much as is. Like, I make it a point to tell people where I'm going to be at a particular time. I try and travel in groups. I try and travel on you know well-lit streets Mm -hmm. I try and not make eye contact with people I try and avoid you know sometimes even dressing in a certain way if I know that I'm going to be in an area where there are a lot of clubs and bars I already do all this shit that I should not be having to do Mm. so this advice if we want to call it that as well-intentioned as it is isn't actually going to change my behavior because I already do all this shit And I just find it really patronising and condescending to think Mm. that this officer and the police as a whole and society as a whole doesn't think that women already take so many measures to, like, keep ourselves safe. I don't – it didn't even come across as being advice. It was just common sense. As in, like, I – it just didn't even – Why say it then? If it's common sense, if we all do it, why say it? Maybe it's not going it to have had to any be sort of a media impact. comment to say something rather than nothing. I don't know. It just and that's how it came to me. It was so bland. Like it, it was condescending or in its blandness because it's not like it's anything that we don't already know, mm-hmm. um, and we don't need a tragic incident like this for someone to tell us shit that we already know and do in the 
extremes. Like from what you've described, it sounds similar to what I do. Like I frequently cross roads. I like don't really walk um, at night anymore. I don't, you know, I used to have a dog and, you know, anytime I'd be walking around at night, I'd have to have a dog with me Mm. Um, or I'd be on my phone. Like, you know, there's heaps of tactics that we take and you can do whatever you want, but it's still not enough to Mm. um, bite them off. I guess um, because the the other thing that's coming from this is that women predominantly, which um, you've taken, you've been annoyed about, mm. um, the groundswell of women have been saying, well, how about our leaders take a stance and actually say we need to do something about um, men's violence against women? 30 mm. women have died this year. And um, I think our Premier issued a very um, interesting statement that mm-hmm. quite – you know, contradicted a lot of, and that the onus on men, the perpetrator, yeah, to change their attitude. I think I just, I'm very, I don't know, maybe I'm just too cynical about the change, the, 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 um, just waiting for this change to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that's the reason why I place a lot of, it's just easier on me, like labor wise to take on the burden of self responsibility than waiting on the world to change. But I guess my answer to that would be that that isn't working. Oh, yeah. For generations, women have been taking these sorts of preventative measures for their own personal safety. And yet, like you said, we have already had 30 women killed this year and we still have women being attacked at random on the streets. So is there any correlation between women taking more personal responsibility for their safety and actually being safer? Like, I actually don't know if that's the case. So what is interesting is that we were just talking about this, um, this comment from Jane Gilmore, who's a journalist, Mm. um, and, um, feminine, very well-known feminist. And interestingly, like it's so applicable to this circumstance, but we just found, like, literally just before recording this podcast, found out it was written in 2015 in response to Masafukatik's murder. So, in response to your answer, no, nothing much has changed in that period um, of three years. But um, you know, I'll read it out anyway. So, women, if you want to be safe, stay at home. Except that you're more likely to be killed at home by someone who claims they love you. So, don't stay at home. Make sure you don't have a boyfriend because he's the most likely person to kill you and don't go out without your boyfriend because you need someone to protect you. Don't show too much skin or laugh too much, um, too loud or dance too much, but come on, love, give us a smile. Carry your keys and your phone at all times and make sure you run far enough to burn off all those calories, but don't do it in public and for God's sake, don't run in shorts. That's just asking for trouble. Public transport is dangerous, but so are taxis and walking and driving on your own. And did I mention that staying at home is really risky? So don't do any of those things, okay? <laughs> that pretty much nails it, doesn't it? I know. It's such... It really shows that actually women, you don't have control over whether or not you are the victim of this sort of gender I know, Based but time. I think that's just super depressing and disempowering, and I think that's why I'm clinging on to, what, like, what can I do? Like, you mm. know, this is kind of like me at work. Like, I'd be like, what can I do to make this better? Yeah. Like, I don't want to be disempowered and, and not have that control. Like, and I know it's all probably illusory control, um, given what... Like, I take your point. I don't think you have to be disempowered by it, though, because in reading that, it points to another alternative which is that maybe we need to be telling boys 
and men how they should and shouldn't behave when it comes to treating girls and women. I think I just don't trust them. Oh, listen. <laughs> I think it's going to take a long time. I don't trust them to change. Like, I'm the one who told, taught my brother about rape. Like, I taught him about all the provisions of the Crimes Act relevant to rape and what, <laughs> what constitutes rape. Because when I learned about it in criminal law, it fucking blew my mind. Mm. And I was like, well, the duty is on me now to teach him. Mm. But I don't know if it's gone anywhere beyond that. I don't know what he's doing with that information. Mm-hmm. I don't trust him. Mm-hmm. I don't trust anyone. I don't trust anyone but myself to take control for my own safety. I think that's why I'm clinging onto it in an emotional sense because I don't trust the world to change and I don't want to relinquish that control to people who obviously haven't changed since this happened last time and we had this whole same debate as Mm. well last time too. I completely relate to that on a human level, that need to sort of... But on a philosophical level, I'm, I'm, I'm so with you, but... How? Like, how can we move forward Mm. beyond teaching those within our realms? Because we're in a bubble, you know. Like, in the time that um, this has happened, a lot of people outside of our bubble, like the dudes, have been very not all men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They've been very defensive and very um, not what – like, I don't know, have you come across that on your social media feed? No, I'm actually quite selective about the boys and men that I associate with. So I feel like I deleted like 80%. Yeah, I, I have done a lot of deleting in my time on Facebook. But, you know, if you're focused more on the fact that you're not that guy that rapes and murders women and you're more affected by that than the fact that there are girls and women that are being raped and murdered, then there's something that's really wrong with you. And just because you don't rape and murder women does not make you a good guy. I feel like we really need to lift the bar there. Yeah. It just Mm -hmm. means that you're not a criminal, a hardened criminal. I think now that I'm just thinking about it a bit further, it's going to take a really long time to see any sort of change, though, and I think that's the reason why, as an interim solution, maybe for now, it is just about us continuing to do what we already do. Mm-hmm. until the world catches up. Because if you think about it, we had a, a Royal Commission to Family Violence in 2015. The government's instituted so much by way of gender equality reforms mm-hmm. because the findings of the Royal Commission was that um, gender equality is one of the like underlying reasons as to why people commit family violence, mm-hmm. which is a concept that people still do not understand. No. So there's still that cognitive dissonance in the wider community and... I know, like, um, my partner's dad, his work is about teaching people at that very early intervention, like pre-early intervention stage, Mm -hmm. about what that is. So there's still so much learning to be had. Mm. That's going to take decades. It will. But at the same time, the status quo, i.e. women assuming the bulk of the responsibility, is not working. So something needs to change, otherwise... There's no chance of this ever changing. I guess what I'm saying is the change in terms of attitudinal change, if that's what you're talking about, Mm. is going to take decades. Yeah, I completely agree with that. There's no short-term fix for this. As we were talking about before, this, unfortunately, it is on... So for the few men, like one guy that might be listening to this podcast, (laughs) um, I'm talking to you. (laughs) Unfortunately, we need... 
we can't do it by ourselves. Like, we're two ethnic women. Yeah. People don't take us very seriously. That's the reality. And, um, you know, it's not fair, but I accept that. Mm -hmm. You, as white men, and of the people I know who listen to this podcast Mm -hmm. who are men. are Men and especially white men. Are in a real position of privilege and power. And I know you're probably sick of people saying that to you in a dogged way. But I'm saying it to you in a come help us ally, mm-hmm. strategic ally way. Mm-hmm. Um, people will listen to you. If you challenge your mates out in the pub, I'm just thinking of the latest like government ad mm-hmm. to do with the one that's been on TV about um, like, you know, um, mates pulling up their mates, joking about making sexist jokes or saying something horrible about their girlfriend or something like that. If you pull them up on that, that has like 20 times the effect of changing your mates' thoughts and attitudes towards women than for us to write a beautifully eloquent and <laughs> edited um, article that goes on daily life or something. Mm. Um, don't underestimate the power that you have to change those around you. And if you just sit there and be silent, you are complicit. Mm-hmm. And so. And I am really sick and tired of this being typecast as a woman's issue. And. I know I've mentioned this to you before, but one of the sort of really disheartening and dispiriting things about this whole incident has been that the bulk of the responses and the bulk of the talk about it has been coming from women. And we're sick and tired of doing this shit. Like, do you think it's because the guys are not interested or is it because they're scared to say something because they'll get piled on like these police officers? I think it's probably a bit of both, but my answer to that would be if you do get piled on, then deal with it. That's a pretty... uh, It's a learning curve. It's a learning curve. We're all learning here. And like you said, the actual benefits that stood to be gained from more men speaking up is just worth it, Mm. you know? And frankly, boys and men are perpetrating these acts. It's and interesting because um, I saw a tweet by Michelle Laurie, mm-hmm. who's um, a comedian and a writer, and she said, interestingly enough, my kid knows all about not doing um, hurting pets mm-hmm. and animals. Like, I've taught him from a very young age, don't hit animals and don't hit pets. Interestingly, though, I've never taught him not to rape. Um, and that's on. And she was kind of just saying, like, that's on me to be teaching my boy not to do that and I thought that was really interesting because we all don't want to think of the worst and like I have had a few people ask me what happened to me to Mm -hmm. make me so suspicious of men um recently including my own mother (laughs) and I say to that nothing but I well that's not entirely true though I mean you have been followed on occasion you have been approached on occasion no, I think it was in response to just suspicion. Isn't that reason to be suspicious? Yeah, but like I said in the car, like getting followed by dudes is just kind of a natural part of being a woman. That's fucked. Anyway, <laughs> let me continue. So aside from that, um, and I say to that, I'm not going to treat my brother, I'm not going to put him on a pedestal in terms of he's my golden boy brother who can never rape. No. 
And the same with my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to treat him as if, like, oh, he will never go around raping people. No. Mm-hmm. So I am going to talk openly about sexual assault and violence against women and attitudes towards women. Um, and I'm going to pull them up on it. And I'm and it's gory and it's gross and it's, um, you know, you can say that, like, why, like, bring the emotion into it unnecessarily and say why are you so suspicious of your loved ones? And I'm like, no, I'm not. It's mm-hmm. just... You just have to treat them like every other person. Mm. They may very well not know what they're doing constitutes indecent assault or rape or anything like that. And there's this misnomer that exists that it's boys some... and men perpetrate these acts are actually monsters who Boogie do men. This. Yeah. And this is why these cases are so problematic and garner mm. so much media attention. But behind this one horrific death, are 29 other women who have died this year too mm-hmm. um, in circumstances where most of the violence committed against women is in intimate partner relationships. Mm -hmm. And so that Jane Gilmore quote is right. You Mm -hmm. are most dangerous when you're at home, not when you're wandering around the streets late at night. Mm -hmm. And so... um, And just in terms of having that discussion with the boys and men in our lives, um, I've just brought up this quote that um, Karen Pickering, another really prominent feminist Uh, posted on Twitter and it goes to that larger point that you were Mm. making so she says the questions we should be asking are how are our boys connecting to other people are they showing respect for the girls and women in their lives do they seem withdrawn and hostile are you ever worried about their ability to regulate anger control their temper admit when they're in pain should my son be getting professional support from a counselor or psychologist is my brother dangerous Is my father stable? What options are available to me if I think any of the men in my life pose a risk to someone else or themselves? That's what a society that cares about violence against women would be asking right now. How do men get to this point? And where in their lives do they start to view girls as less than them? What is fueling this endless and toxic hatred of women? That's so good. Like, some of those questions I haven't even thought about. Me too. I hadn't thought about them until I read them, but these are the kinds of questions we need to be asking and these are the kinds of conversations we need to be having. Mm. Like you said, with your brother, with... Yeah, and with with the people in our lives because most of the people that do these things are mundane people leading mundane lives. Exactly, And you just don't know what's simmering under the surface. And, yeah, you're right. It's not a weird boogeyman who perpetuates these crimes, it's often very ordinary people. And this alleged perpetrator may very well have been a very ordinary dude. Mm. He was 19 years old. He's Mm. quite young. Um, Who knows? Mm. And so I think, yeah, I I feel like I wish we recorded this last night when we were were at kind of polar opposites in terms of this. (laughs) I mean, I still very much am pro-self-responsibility. Yes. I think the two have to be spoken. Like, there's no reason why we can't have the dual conversation. And But I do accept that it should be majority of, like, how can we change the men mm-hmm. in our community to respect women and to not think of them as just something they're entitled to. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the same vein, have the same general conversation about self-responsibility, which we would have in any other circumstance. It's, this is no different to, say, the risk assessment that I should take when I'm riding my bike, mm-hmm. which um, 
is labor Mm -hmm. but I do do the assessment of like which road should I be taking um which which one's going to have the most lighting and which one's going to have least amount of cars like you know that's the same sort of like risk assessment on a like a mundane activity Mm. no I agree with you I think the two conversations need to be happening at the same time yes one more than the other exactly I think that's been the point of contention that we are always so focused on what women as victims and survivors need to be doing that we're actually disregarding you know the people that have the largest amount of control over the situation and that's actually our boys and our men exactly and and that's society's responsibility for they're our boys mm-hmm. they're our men they're not boogeymen that have been mm-hmm. um come out from nowhere <laughs> mm. you know we shape we as a society shape the attitudes that these people have towards women and so if there is any sense of self-responsibility that we as women need to take, maybe it is in talking more openly about these conversations with the men in our lives. Mm. It's not the whole, you know, having more keys to stab people with and stuff like that. It's actually about opening the dialogue and questioning and challenging those views because I think outside of our friendship circle, a lot of men still hold some very – questionable views about women and their place in society and and their entitlement to our bodies Mm -hmm. and so I think that yeah yeah I think that's tied that well (laughs) I'd love to say that our next conversation is going to be lighter Uh, I feel like people who have been listening to our podcast enough know that lightness is not really a theme in any of our podcasts not at all um (laughs) I just, I fell in love with this book. Yes, we both did. Um, and the reason I initially got it was because I was like, oh, she's a judge's associate. She would have that dual experience um, of, you know, being on the other side of the courtroom. Mm-hmm. So um, we're talking about Eggshell Skull by Brie Lee, who um, is an extraordinary young writer. This is her debut book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also... A memoir. Mm. We went to the actual book launch for it that was hosted by Clementine Ford. Such a great, great vibe mm. of that book launch. And mm. she's just, um, I think after seeing her at the book launch and then reading this book, I was just so shocked that someone who, you know, is so articulate and could hold herself in, with such confidence and um, just an all-round amazing person um, had to deal with all this horrible stuff mm-hmm. that she thrashes out in her book. So um, I guess there's a few things that were of significant interest to us and we're just going to pluck through a few of those themes and have a bit of discussion about it, I guess, as lawyers, but also as young feminists um, as well. So um, the first thing, it was in the um, prologue to this book, actually, and when I read it, I... At the same time, I was doing a a matter in the children's court. And the comment that her dad said to her was, never look for justice, my dad said to me that night. And and then time and time again, I didn't listen. And that kind of sets up her Mm. entire book um, and her entire experience about it because she does go through the criminal justice experience for a lot of the victims um, and perpetrators that she saw in her time as the judge's associate. So um, I guess the, the interesting thing for me, um, I don't practice in criminal law, whereas you do, um, was 
And you've had experience being a registrar as well, so being in the same position as Brie. Yeah, it was... I, I think what really appealed to me reading this was sort of reliving a lot of my own experiences, both as a registrar at the court. I'm and not sure why that would be empowering. <laughs> I don't know if it was empowering. <laughs> it was interesting, at least. Um, but... Uh, there was a particular ex- excerpt right at the beginning that um, really sort of um, hit quite close to home. Uh, so she says, and this is um, her first day working as an associate at the district court in Brisbane, which for Victorians is the equivalent of the county court. And she says, that afternoon, all of the new associates got taken on a short tour of the cells under the building. It was cold down there and everything seemed large, but it wasn't shiny like upstairs. Cement instead of marble, grey bars instead of chrome arches. At the end of the tour, the security officer asked if we had any questions and someone asked if all these temporary holding cells had filled up after the G20 protests. The government had panicked about it. Not even close, the officer said with a laugh. I raised my hand next. I read a newspaper article yesterday that said the prisons are too full and we'd need more facilities. Is that true? It's not a problem of not enough space at the correctional facilities, he said, shaking his head. It's that we're sending too many people to jail for too long. The longer they're in, the less likely they are to ever get out. Back up on level 13, I looked out over Brisbane bathed in hot yellow sunlight and thought about how all the people in the top levels were university-educated white-collar overachievers. Far beneath us, 15 stories down, under the ground, near where the cars were parked, we kept the criminals. We even kept the alleged criminals down there, away from the sun. My career in the clouds was built on the misfortune and misconduct of the people way below. The chrome impossible without the concrete. I made $50,000 my first year out of university and I made it from a system that is funded by necessity because people keep doing awful things to one another. That's so (laughs) confronting to hear, especially like as a criminal lawyer. I had never thought of my job in that way, but... She's absolutely right. I feel like if you're working in like private practice and billing, like actual you know, proper full-fledged billing mm. and pressure, billing pressures and stuff like that, you'd feel that a lot more. Like, yeah. you are making your fortune out of their misery. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, like I said, reading the book was much like reliving a lot of my own experiences because what she's doing is telling us about her year-long experience being a judge's associate mm. and sitting in on different trials, the bulk of which pertain to sexual assaults, whilst at the same time grappling with her own sexual assault suffered Mm. as a child and then going through the criminal justice system herself in an effort to seek justice for what's been done to her. And see, this is why I think I am really interested in her perspective because I think a lot of lawyers who practice in these areas become, you know, I assume a lot of people don't have their own personal experience, but there is that risk that you become very hardened to what Mm. you see and you lose a lot of that empathy and you lose a lot of that critical thinking that comes with the process. So what I found really interesting in this book was just her experience of the criminal justice system 
she, as she um, admits in the book, was like a pretty good victim. Mm. Um, she's a white, educated, well-to-do-ish, middle-class, I, I think. Her mm-hmm. dad's a police officer. And her dad's a police officer, so, you know, <laughs> more, layer. more enforcement background mm-hmm. and very clued up on what she was going to do. But mm. the system still seemed very stacked against her. Mm. So what hope is there for everyone else? Mm. And, like, I think I knew about it on a very abstract, like, level, theoretical level that, you know, um, pressing charges for sexual offences, especially where it's historic, is always going to be like pushing shit up a mountain mm. or whatever the saying is. Mm. <laughs> like just a horrible experience all around. And to be completely honest, I don't think I would do it. And I really admire her courage and bravery for continuing to push through the process because there were times where I was like, she's going to, why doesn't she just throw in the towel now? It just, it's yeah. so horrible having to, um, the re-traumatization of complainants, Mm. in the whole process. So, you know, she out, outlines the way that the matter goes to trial. So it has to be, you know, a criminal brief prepared by police officers. So you rely on them. You rely on them to be interested in your case and to ask the right questions and to follow deadlines and to file the proper paperwork. Then it's referred to the DPP. You rely on them to assess whether on the basis of what the police have provided them, it meets their threshold of having reasonable prospects of success and also in the public interest to prosecute. And then after that, you're relying on the court or you're relying on the jury, depending on if it's a, a judge or jury trial. Mm. You're, and you're the victim. You're not a, really strictly a party to the proceedings. It's, it's not a victim-centric process. No. It's, at all. Well, it's the Queen against the... Um, the accused. Mm. So there's no, you know, there's not gonna not gonna be any Kathy versus the accused. It's that has its rationale too. We should say. I mean, yes, you, you can understand theoretically. Why, theoretically, you can understand why there are all these safeguards in place for people accused of these crimes. We want to make sure that innocent people aren't being punished. Mm. But from the perspective of a victim that has suffered such a horrendous crime, you can really sort of see how that kind of process would, like you said, be re-traumatising for someone. It it just wears you down, I assume. It mm. took it takes so long for this whole process to happen. and It took her case two years to exactly. proceed from when she made her initial complaint to police to when the actual decision was handed down by the courts. And that was a decision that wasn't appealed, so... Well, Let's say if know. he had appealed the conviction, then it could have taken even longer. Exactly. So um, I think that was what was kind of eye-opening to see that experience and how negative it was. How did you find that from the like being on the defence side? Yeah, it was, it was tricky. I mean, I could definitely empathise with her position, being the victim of a sexual assault and especially being like a pretty hardened feminist myself. And the court system is less than ideal and nobody knows that better than criminal defence lawyers. <laughs> I mean, they did offer her the option of doing um, the retributive, uh, not retributive, restorative justice. <laughs> the other side of the coin. <laughs> the restorative justice um, mediation. Mm. She flat out said no. Mm. Yeah, that's never going to be right for everyone. No, because she wanted a conviction. She mm-hmm. wanted that on his record. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Mm. Um 
So that's probably the only other option that's available to complainants at the moment. Mm. Yeah, the, uh, to be honest, from a very procedural point of view, none of what happened in the book surprised me. And that's oh, no. Predominantly <laughs> because working as a registrar, I saw how long these cases would take. Like, I remember really empathising with her when she started going to the um, different mentions of the matters in court and every yeah. single time she would go to the court and initially it started in the magistrate's and court. Her around. And, you know, she was being bounced around from courtroom to courtroom and yeah. nothing of substance would be achieved in much of these mentions. And I remember how she was sort of aghast at all of this happening, whereas when I was reading it, I was like, oh, yep, first mention, nothing's going to happen there. He'll be lucky. She'll be lucky if he shows up, if his lawyer shows up, and then it'll be in a German. And well, I wish someone had explained that to her. Yeah, and that's why I feel um, like really sympathetic for victims of crimes because, you know, for the reasons that um, are unknown to me at the moment, <laughs> there are bureaucratic, like the bureaucracy is involved, mm. and um, victims don't really have a role to play in this other than being the key witness to the prosecution mm. case. And so there's no – I just felt like um, there could have been a lot more communication. Yes. I mean, I think of, like, the civil cases that I've done and the bending over backwards that we would go to ensure that the key witnesses to our cases are really – their well-being is looked after and – they're completely, you know, managed. And I just kind of wonder if we can provide that in a civil context, mm. um, where are the people providing that for people in, in this criminal context, which is so much, arguably so much worse than mm. a civil case? Yeah, I, I don't know if that comes down to the individuals involved or if there are resourcing constraints. I suspect it's a bit of both. Yeah. I think there needs to be something there. Mm. I, I don't know how many cases they deal with, but you just have to make the funding available to have much better case management mm. um, and case managers who can assist the victims rather than these victim layers and officers who move on and mm. don't necessarily provide that wraparound support for these poor victims because it is horrible. It's such a traumatic experience and it felt so depersonalising to her. Mm -hmm. um, I think she really got put in a box, um, mm. back in her box, I suppose, with the magistrate's court experience because you're just a number you are, around. you are, but listen, the magistrate's court deals with, what, 90% of your criminal matters, and I don't have stats before me, but, you know, the magistrate's court is inundated with... No, I completely... Thousands, and listen, that's not on her, that, that is something that society is complicit in. We don't prioritise our courts enough and giving them the resources they need to make sure that both victims and offenders are having their needs addressed throughout mm. the process. And you're right, if that's something that we want to prioritise, then we need to invest in it. Mm. Because we, you know, nationally have seen the effect that protracted ongoing sexual abuse, sexual assault um, matters have had on people and, you know, I can never forget, and I think she mentions it in the book, about the Ballarat mm. school where more than half of the faces were blacked out because they were deceased mm. due to who knows what. Mm. Um, but those were victims of horrific offending by a Catholic um, priest. Like, you know, we don't want to see that in the pursuit of justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to see more witnesses, victims being 
weighed down like that because mm-hmm. I think they are also entitled to to push for their sense of justice. I shouldn't have to feel like discouraged from doing that because of the practical realities of it being a horrible, clunky bureau, like a bureaucracy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to be completely honest, I wouldn't report. Yeah. Well, we've had this discussion before, right? Um, I've had many friends come to me with experiences of sexual assault and I have had some ask me if they should actually go to the police and to go through the court system and I've really been caught in two minds about it because on the one hand I want to support my friend in whatever he or she chooses to do but on the other hand I am aware of those practical realities that you alluded to earlier and I know what a debilitating and depressing process it is going to be Mm. and I honestly don't know if I would report well she was warned about that and I think um the police person dealing with her matter very much was like oh are you sure you want to go through with this because mm-hmm. he has had experience in it and he would know how difficult it is to get these matters up mm. um and so I think you know in that sense they're quite um colored in their view of these mm. matters too so mm. if you're getting that kind of discouragement from people who are meant to be um they know the process. They know the process <laughs> and they're also meant to be on your side. Yeah. If you're getting that kind of discouraging message, then I think a lot of people just wouldn't. Mm. Like, why would you? Maybe we do need to start exploring alternative ways of um, justice because it seems like this whole court process was so drawn out, not sure it was worth it, cost a lot of money, mm-hmm. cost a lot of court time. So maybe it is a matter of looking elsewhere mm. if we believe in that notion of justice which mm. I don't know it's questionable the longer I that idealism starts to wear off from <laughs> university yeah yeah um, it, definitely it does. is getting a bit like mm. um I guess the other thing that I thought was really interesting and it's a bit tangential to what the rest of the book was about which was about the sexual assault matters she observed in her own experience was um her struggles with mental health Mm-hmm. And the one sentence that actually really struck with me um, was when she talks about she started accessing her work's EAP, doing it on the sly, mm-hmm. um, which now that I'm a bit older, I just kind of don't get because I know, I know younger me was very much like, I don't shit where I eat, so I'm just going to go and pay $200 an hour to go see someone well away from work. I don't want anything connected to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think... Theoretically, they're meant to be confidential and they are offered free because, you know, um, acknowledging workplace stress. But she talks about um, her psych appointments and she says, My psychologist's appointments were rare because I couldn't find slots to fit around my work very often. I was also nervous about having to disclose my mental health care when I went for admission to the legal profession in a few months' time. A section of the paperwork is dedicated to things you have to put on the record that might affect your suitability to practice law, and that's where you disclose your criminal convictions, Centrelink frauds, speeding fines, and whether or not you've had any mental illnesses. I didn't even know I could ask about this process without making it pretty damn obvious I was on, or considering going on, a mental health plan. So that reminded me of when I was going through my own admission process, and the questioning I had about whether or not I needed um, to disclose having seen a psychologist for management of my anxiety disorder at the time 
it was like pretty low level compared to what I went through last year. But, you know, I had seen a psychologist. So, um, and I was put on a mental health plan, which I think everyone pretty much is on one. So it's not like a big deal Mm. or anything. But having to make the disclosure under the capacity disclosure was a big deal. And the wording of the capacity disclosure is you're pretty much making a statutory declaration to the board saying, I have um, either suffer or I'm suffering from a mental health um, issue that may affect my capacity or my fitness to work, something along to that effect. And I think there's something really problematic with the way that we do that in the admission process. It's incredibly stigmatising, the language that's used. Yes. And nothing has changed. I was hoping something would have changed in the last three years. No. And having you read that and recount your own experience makes me, again, relive my own, which was really difficult at the time because, you know, you've sort of put in all this time and effort into getting the grades that you need to get into law school and then you work your ass off working um, sort of with all these other really like high achiever types and then you get that law degree and then you need to do that further study in order to enable you to be able to practice as a lawyer and then once you do that further study you need to submit all that paperwork in order to get admitted and you're sort of you feel like you're running a marathon and you're kind of at the finish line and this is the last thing you need to do. Yeah. And I remember being in two minds like you because... Do I disclose it? Because yeah. the um, Victorian Legal Admissions Board has actually published like a health, um, mental health guideline. And it says that you don't need to disclose any mental health problems that are currently being managed. Right. I, this must have happened after I yeah I was going to say yeah. it wasn't around at my time. I don't. I would argue that's still not enough because we. I remember from day one of law school doing um, ILR. Mm-hmm. What's that called? Introduction to um, Legal Reasoning. Yeah, that's right. Um, which is the introductory law unit that we were taught about what admission, what we'd have to declare an admission. Mm-hmm. Mental health was one of them. This mm-hmm. was then later reinforced in ethics mm-hmm. where we only studied the cases where people got struck off yeah. for not disclosing their mental health problems. So despite the legal admissions board clarifying, and I say this in inverted commas, um, the boundaries of what is a capacity issue that needs to be disclosed to them, I would argue that um, five years of social conditioning at university and being told you'll be struck off the roll if you don't <laughs> disclose everything mm-hmm. that you've ever done, of course you're going to disclose. Mm. And then when you go and disclose, I will, I've got the capacity statement here now. You have to declare this. I wish to disclose to the Victorian Legal Admissions Board that I suffer or have suffered from a condition which might affect my present ability to engage in legal practice. And so I know what the argument will be. They'll say, well, Anna, it says if it is a condition that will affect your ability Mm. to engage, how the fuck am I meant to know? Like, I don't want to take the risk of making an improper... No, especially all that fear-mongering that law school, like, emboldens in you, telling you you need to disclose, you need to disclose... 
And how do I know that I like something I have suffered mm-hmm. ha- might not affect my presentability? Like, what does that even mean? Yeah, I'll, I'm gonna do some. Well, like, that's why I erred on the side of caution exactly. when it came and to my all, own admission. We all do, though. But the problem was, I, I said yes. I've been diagnosed with anxiety disorder. Yes, I've been diagnosed with depression. Yes, I've had issues with anorexia in the past. Did you disclose all of that? To I them? disclosed all of that because I still remember reading. Those cases that you referred to earlier where it was like, oh. goddamn business. I know, but no, to top things off. How does your anorexia have an effect on your present ability to engage in legal practice? Who the fuck knows? But it's like what you said. I'm like, I don't know if I'm equipped to comment on whether or not that affects my ability to practice. Yeah, because we're not fucking doctors. And let me tell you, doctors don't have to make this disclosure. There is no other profession that I'm aware of. I need to check psychologists. Mm-hmm. I assume they'd be the only one that would have that for obvious reasons. Mm. But there is no other profession that requires this type of disclosure into the deep and intimate um, crevices of things you have suffered from. Like if I suffered from, you know, a psychosis event in when in my teens, <laughs> I would arguably still have to disclose this. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what, um, in my experience, reinforced it further was the fact that I disclosed everything thinking, right, they can't catch me out because I have told them anything and everything about myself. And then they said, uh, well, they actually sent me a letter saying, actually, at this stage, we can't accept all your documents for lodgement because we need something from your psychologist that, and this wasn't the wording, but this is essentially the interpretation I took which was that we need something from your psychologist that attests to the fact that, you know, you're sane enough to practice given everything you've just disclosed, which was a slap to the face because I was like, hold on a minute. I can't believe that. I, I feel like <laughs> I've blocked out both of our admission things. Because we had lots of rants at the time. I promise I know, you I know. But I think, and I think your experience actually was what made me very paranoid about what had to be disclosed and we have friends whose parents died and they had to mm. go and see grief counselors because their parents died mm-hmm. who had to disclose that too like how traumatizing is that yeah. to have to disclose these types of things and i know people who say oh listen there's no need for you to sort of disclose all of that stuff but when you are at law school and you are reading case after case where you know, a person is being struck off or refused admission because they haven't disclosed something like a mental health condition. What are you going to do in that situation? Exactly. It's either this and keep in mind, this is when we're being very impressionable young law graduates Mm. who are desperate to make our last five years of education and, you know, in excess of 60 grand come to something. Mm. You'll disclose. I am actually really shocked that they asked for follow-up stuff for you and I yeah think- and then I had to go through the whole process where I made contact with the psychologist and the psychologist wanted a couple of hundred dollars for a letter and yeah I was, yeah yeah it was the kick in the balls is you have to pay for a letter that costs two hundred dollars and it's non-tax refundable I checked oh fuck <laughs> I didn't check that I basically I, I coached my so psychologist to write something free oh did you get a free one yeah I did okay, yeah well, I've been seeing it for a while at that time I didn't get a free one. But I just, I have issues with... Which also, by the way, exacerbated my mental health issues at the time. Exactly. I remember, (laughs) I do remember the anxiety because you did the right thing. 
Um, the whole purpose of the disclosure issues at admission is candor, right? Yeah. You can be a child molester. That's cool. <laughs> but you just have to disclose it. And so... Um, and there I, are cases to that effect. There are actually... I'm not just saying Yeah, you're not shit. actually saying like, that in a symbolic way. I was obsessed way. with this. <laughs> like, obsessed with it in law school. Um, all the people. Like, I remember um, there was the Centrelink guy who got... Like, he was on youth allowance and forgot to, like, report his earnings or something. Something mm-hmm. so mundane. And he got struck off. So, you know, um, there are... This is the operating environment mm-hmm. in which came to the decisions that we made to disclose our like pretty low level mm. mental health, you know, things. Mm. Um, but reading Bree Lee's comments about it, because she, I think she must have gotten admitted a bit after we did. Uh, I can't remember now. No, she would have. She would have because she yeah. was working as an associate back in 2014. I think yeah, it was. right. So, um, you know, reading that just <laughs> like it triggered all these memories <laughs> that were deep in some dungeon because I remember at the time I was so angry but also so stressed about it. Mm. And then um, it was just such a clusterfuck. But I think we need to change this disclosure. We either need to make it even more abundantly clear, and maybe it will have to be tested through the case law, um, that having a low level, like, you know, having – we all have mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think it's very incongruous for us to be having this horrible capacity statement – um, which does actually discourage a lot of law students from seeking help. Um, and I was going to say, I actually really put off seeking help for so long. Like I fought mm. it because I was thinking, oh, shit, I'm going to have to disclose this when I go for admission. They're going to think I'm crazy. They might not, like, admit me. And I can't even imagine during your experience when they were asking for the additional documentation what you were thinking because, mm. you know, we were almost at the finish line. Mm. And it really adds much further to the mental agony. And on top of that, we're not even in practice yet. And now we know that there are really high levels of depression and anxiety amongst lawyers. Um, And that's after admission. So I don't know. Do you think there should even be a mental health component to disclosure? Is it relevant? Yeah, is it? Because if doctors, for example, are not required to provide such disclosure. Why lawyers? Where did this come from? I reckon it came from some fraud case. Mm. I'm going to do more research about it, but I reckon some lawyer stole money from his clients and then blamed it on his schizophrenia. <laughs> I reckon. <laughs> that's Anna's opinion. That's my opinion. I don't know, and I will find the case law. I am very curious to know I reckon how that's is, come about. I think it is actually something to do mm. with, obviously, you've breached your duties to your client. Mm-hmm. So you've mm-hmm. acted in some way that is inconsistent with your client's interests and it's resulted in some horrible outcome for your client, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not worth having the – we. the reality is we are having people tragically take their lives because they feel like they can't reach out and get help and speak candidly about it and then we've got – this profession like saying that we care about mental health issues and we're going to do mindfulness and we're going to do this and we're going to do yoga classes and running club. No, it's actual like fundamental change to the way that we treat people who need to seek help and not even, you know, have a diagnosable mental health problem. 
problem, but to make it less stigmatised because the way it is now, I do know there are many law students who would be discouraged mm. at the prospect of not being admitted because they saw a counsellor in 2011 for some mm. study-related problem, knowing that they have to disclose that. Mm. And so I think we either need to make do with this whole capacity statement. Mm -hmm. um, I think the more realistic possibility is to keep the capacity statement, but I would ask that that clause five be changed that it be worded in such a way that doesn't feel like you're disclosing that you're mental. Like the way yeah. I felt when I disclosed was like, do I even need to disclose? It doesn't sound like me. I sound like some like really, really crazy mm. person who is going to, you know, do something just out of the world and mm. need to be institutionalized. That, mm. it, the, that was my thought process when I was typing out this declaration. Yeah, mine too. It was coming from a real place of fear and not, a place of feeling comfortable about the fact that I had the issues. Well, I look, it's drafted so broadly as well that you can interpret it either way, and I kind of want someone to take it to court mm. um, just so we can have a precedent case. But it says that I suffer or have suffered from a condition which might affect my present ability to practice. Mm -hmm. And so anything could be a mind. Mm. My anxiety disorder could be a mind affect mm -hmm. my ability to engage in practice. And what does that even mean the ability to engage in practice i'm sure there's some case law to that effect too mm. but what, what does that mean does it mean you have depression and it affects your ability to be at work this standard 36 hour week mm -hmm. is that what that means mm. Mm. I, I have no idea yeah you're right there needs to be a lot more clarity around it yeah so that was my my beef <laughs> um did you have beef uh, do I have a beef? Did I know her beef? You were talking about like her as trauma. Oh, yes. Okay, so this kind of um, flows on well from that. Um, so, again, going back to the book, one of the real takeaways that I took um, was her experience of just sitting in day in, day out, hearing these sexual assault trials that more often than not ended in acquittals or not guilty mm -hmm. verdicts. They need to make it mandatory for some sort of debriefing, I reckon. I agree. I think it should be actually an opt-out system where when you work in this sort of environment, mm. you all need to be going and seeking counselling. And The coroner's would be... court used to do that. Yeah, because that way you destigmatise it because, you know, it's like, oh, well, I kind of have to go and... They're like, making me. Yeah, you know, Ugh. see this psych. But then once they actually get in there, yeah. who knows what's going on. Um, but it really brought up a lot of my own experience working as a registrar at the courts. And I've sort of retold this anecdote to a bunch of people. But I do remember acutely this month-long period where day in, day out, I was uh, listening in on rape committals. I remember that period too. <laughs> and I just... I didn't even realise it at the time how badly it was affecting me until the end of that month when I actually just went up to my manager at the time and said, I think I'm just hating men. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And I just need a break, please. And I was lucky in that I had a manager that I knew I could have that conversation mm. with and who I knew would be responsive to me giving my view on that sort of thing. But I thought it was kind of shit that the onus was on me to say or do something and that 
I had to be fortuitous enough or lucky enough rather, to, have a great manager. to have a good manager. Mm. Um, I feel like management at the courts in general and just in workplaces where you are sort of exposed to sort of the worst of society that the people in power in those places really do need to take a more active role in mm. ensuring the health and well-being of their staff. Yes, and I think there are, you know, they have OHS obligations to ensure it's a safe workplace. They And do. I would argue that's psychologically safe as well. Yeah, I agree. I, but I think um, I think a lot of the onus is put on the individual to say something. Yeah, rather for, than taking proactive action. Exactly. And for a long time I did not say anything because a lot of people did not want to sit in on these rape committals. And so they were always short-staffed in finding clerks that wanted or registrars that wanted to do them. And did they wonder why? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good question. It was something that was just sort of taken for granted. And that's why I think something like an opt-out system for counselling would be really good. Um, and I think some, like I know my workplace um, is doing, is, massive strides in this space mm-hmm. by doing um, I think they're organizing to do debrief sessions that are pretty compulsory like I think you are expected to go great and so there is no op- like you know you can just you you have to get the help mm-hmm. and they're facilitating that for you mm-hmm. because often you're not a good gauge of when you need help mm. sometimes it is actually up to wherever you work, to take that proactive step. And, you know, it's just we talked about risk assessment before. This is a very foreseeable consequence of Mm. doing the same work over and over again. And so if you're a good employer, you're going to be able to say, well, look, I have this person um, seeing, you know, these horrible rape incest matters day in, day out, you know, for months on end. I think it's a foreseeable consequence <laughs> that they're going to need someone to debrief it with because yeah. the issues with this is also like um, when you're working as a lawyer, there's confidentiality, um, legally privileged information. Mm-hmm. You can't actually debrief with anyone mm. um, without having a really general conversation about what you saw. Mm-hmm. Um, there may also be issues with if it's a child, um, I'm sure mm. there's significant privacy and secrecy provisions and stuff like that. And we debrief uh, at my current job. um, There's a significant uh, number of lawyers and we debrief amongst each other. But I think one of the things I've become mindful of is the fact that, you know, in sort of um, unburdening myself, I'm burdening someone else who's going through the same thing. That's the beauty of paying people to do it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) There needs to be. So that informal debrief with colleagues is essential, but I don't think it's a solution. I agree. Um, Colleagues, though, are often, and I know this is spoken from a position of extreme luckiness and privilege to have colleagues who I can have this conversation with, they will know better than most people, though, because they can relate True. To, to what has happened. True. But that doesn't – yeah, you're right. It's not a replacement for seeking professional help. Mm. So I think they can help you in the sense of like, oh, that was a shit day. Mm. Um, but in terms of strategies, they're not mm. there to help you with that. Yeah. Um, and I would be loath to burden my colleagues with those types of, um, you know, my innermost thoughts about things. Mm. That's something you pay – a professional to do or you get your work to pay them to do because you know with psychologists they actually themselves have 
people they do they have so as a part of their supervision um arrangement they have a senior mentor they have to see consistently to debrief mm-hmm. which I, it makes sense they yeah. hear shit all day mm-hmm. so I have no doubt that they'll need their own debriefing mm. so you know even they have to see people to help them yeah yeah and I think um sort of reading Bree's experience in the book it was frustrating for me to sort of see that yes you know she would kind of have that informal debrief with some of the other associates they didn't seem to be on the same level no and there was one in particular that she got along with well but she was going through the same shit as well and saying but oh worse. hear like about a, this rape game of one up like <laughs> yeah. i hated that and i hope i don't do that like i know it's not intentional that you'd be like i've had the worst day i saw insert horrible thing and then your friend would be like Mate, if you thought that was horrible, <laughs> I'll one up you. I mean, I don't think I've done that, but no, I, it I don't might think... happen at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which again. is horrible. It feels dismissive. Like if someone said that to me instead of being like, "Oh, that's really shit," mm. I'd feel like, "Oh, mm. well, then I lost the game of who had the mm. worst day." <laughs> and so, in that sense, maybe. And I actually, um, when I know, like, and with you, like, I sometimes I do have to think, but then I don't think before I speak, so then it's too late. <laughs> But I'd be like, I had the worst day. This happened. And then you'd be like, oh, my God, I just had to deal with this horrible thing. I'd be like, no. oh, my God, maybe I am, like, one-upping you. No, no, not like that. But I feel bad because I'm like, well, my thing definitely was not that interesting. Um, I mean, I don't care about it that much. Like, I don't care being one one up. It's horrible that it's a competition. I think that's how – it's just a relatability thing. Yeah, like, mate, that's if right. If you think – You've had a shit day. I've had a shit day. Yeah. Well, listen, I've tried having this conversation with people that don't work in this space at all. Uh, and sometimes that's a lot worse. We tried that. <laughs> um, when we were living together, actually, we did that. And that was a reality check I think we needed. What, what were we talking about? Oh, this is when we were talking with our other housemates that I don't, don't even work know in what law. comment we were talking about. Probably just mundane work you, stuff. You were telling me about. The child rape. And then I was like, oh, yeah. And we were just kind of talking about it in a very mundane way, way, in full view of our other housemate who does nothing like this for work and was just aghast at what we were talking about. And I think that is the reality check we need, though, because mm. um, this ain't normal. Yeah, that's right. And with her, I could you could track the moment when she starts heading down the vicarious trauma route, which mm. is when you're um, – conception of the world is very negative and it's very distorted mm-hmm. and so I think you do need to draw on the help of other people independent people for instance psychologists um, or other friends and family who aren't enmeshed in the profession mm-hmm. to pull you out of it and to actually see perspective like I think the most um the best thing that one of my managers ever said so she's a senior sergeant of police um and she was just saying well look the worst has already happened. Someone's already died or whatever's already happened. You're mm-hmm. just the lawyer. You're just here to clean up the mess that's already happened. Mm-hmm. And she's right. Mm. Like I really do take her words with me and that's why I try not to take things too seriously because the worst has already happened. Mm-hmm. You're just there mm-hmm. to fix what's already happened. Mm-hmm. And also we're not doctors, like, you know. Yeah. It's not like we've got, like, literal people's lives in our hands. <laughs> no I mean, matter how much we like to well, think that we do. Well, you kind of do. I mean, um, I, I really don't. Like, that's not my job. But um, 
like, you know, I guess in a mm. sense you've got people's liberty in your hands, mm. but you don't have their lives mm. in your hands. And if someone were to, you know, take their life or something like that, it should not be on you because you did everything you could mm-hmm. to do that. Mm. Rationally, that resonates. I know, but, you know, emotionally, probably not. It's a bit, yeah. So on that lovely note, this is probably one of the longest ones we've done in a really long time. One of the most depressing ones, perhaps. I feel like we've laughed a lot, though. I do. I loved this book. Like, this definitely would form one of my recommendations. And if you guys have, like, a book club or anything, it's a really good um, interaction between really current the current Me Too environment, mm. I think it's the perfect time for her to release this book. Yes. Um, but also if you're a lawyer and you're interested in sort of that criminal perspective, um, if you're a feminist and interested in a victim's experience of sexual um, sexual offending and also the criminal justice system, it's a really good book. What do you think? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I would say it's easily the best book I've read this year. So yes. Far. Definitely. And it's Australian as well. Yeah. I love reading Support Australian. Support local literature. And she's young. She's a young woman. She's an up-and-comer. So yeah. I think um, definitely would form one of my recommendations of the year. Yes. Agreed. All right. Well, until next time, everyone, hopefully we've got some more upbeat fodder for the next <laughs> podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye.